The Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast is a thought leadership forum to educate and inform healthcare companies and clinicians regarding the valuable strategic and financial tool their healthcare real estate provides. The healthcare industry itself is so complex, starting with patients and clinicians to diagnose and treat them, along with payers, regulations, medical devices, medical schools, and a healthcare real estate industry to support its ever-changing and dynamic needs. There is no shortage of topics to discuss on these interviews. The overarching theme of the podcast is to bring awareness to how strategic decisions on a healthcare real estate can lower the cost of ownership and occupancy on a healthcare company's financial statement based on the value and costs associated with assets under management or the annual run rate for leases. Owning their real estate for entrepreneurial private practice physicians can be a personal wealth strategy as well. This week's episode is the first in a two-part series that features previously aired interviews of a healthcare company that built its own building, physician owners sharing their lessons learned with a new facility or building a practice, as well as owning and operating their real estate. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Tricia Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Episode 43. A Dentist Journey Through Healthcare Real Estate Ownership with Dr. Rasa Abdul of Center for Pediatric Dentistry. I think the positives are always, of course, in, in real estate that you own. My dad, I've learned so much from him. He always said to me, buy real estate now and regret it later. So I think owning your own real estate, of course, is, is the best thing. And if you especially work in it as well. Because at the end of it, you know, yes, there are, I mean, I've attended courses where they talk about the tax benefits of renting and not having to worry about anything and so on. But at the end of it, you know, 15 year, 25, 35, 40 year career, you have that property that's accumulated a lot of wealth in it and the value of it is much higher. This week's episode is a conversation with Dr. Rasa Abdul, a pediatric dentist regarding his practice called the Center for Pediatric Dentistry located in Gilbert, Arizona. Our discussion includes his path to pediatric dentistry and his philosophy on care. Dr. Abdul shares with us how he finally opened a new practice in his current building that he owned for several years prior. He strategically located his practice near where he lives, realizing the financial benefits of ownership, and we discuss how he delegates the day-to-day ownership tasks to a professional property management company. I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Abdul. Please join me next week for my interview with Robin Farman-Farmain, a health technology expert, entrepreneur, and public speaker. Rasa, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to this interview. I'm excited for you to share with the listeners your experience as a pediatric dentist and being a physician owner of your own property where you operate your dental practice. Yes. So tell me a little bit about uh, the Center of Pediatric Dentistry in Gilbert, Arizona. How long have you been in business and you know, specific to your practice? I think being in that location, it targets a lot of growing families. Definitely, definitely. 
Well, I've been practicing now as a pediatric dentist for over 24, 25 years. Um, I had another practice that uh, I sold, which was a rental. I was renting that property and I sold that a few years ago, stayed on board, worked as an associate, and then decided to do my practice all over again. And I thought, what better place than my own building that I had owned for a few years? Because uh, when I was looking around, it was really tough getting a good rent, um, a decent rent. So I thought, why not just go into my own property? So this idea started in 2019 early. And then to late 2019 is when we actually opened up the practice, uh, December of 2019. And of course, worked for a few months and COVID happened. And here we are. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, COVID has thrown us all for a loop, for sure. So when you talk about uh, just, I want to touch on the real estate a little bit, then I want to talk about your practice a little more. But, um, you know, with regard to the rental rates, what I have found too, if if you recall building this out, you know, your price per square foot for your improvements is probably north of, well, north of $100 a square foot. Correct. And so, you know, you, when you're thinking about leasing, you know, you're paying the lease rate, you'll get some of that tenant improvement from the landlord for the lease, but probably not that much, maybe half. So, you know, investing in this also saves you some money in the fact that because you have to invest so much in your tenant improvement build out, it makes a lot of sense to own your own space. It it definitely did in my case too, because when I was searching for a uh, rental property, of course, I noticed that the uh, areas that I wanted to be in, the, the bigger, more popular, denser areas... Um, The rent was high, but for some reason, these corporations were really not giving you much tentative improvement. And if I want a tentative improvement, a good amount, I had to go into properties that are more, of course, like medical dental. I really wanted to be in bigger plazas and uh, shopping areas and so on. So I noticed that difference. And I thought, you know what, if I go into my own building that I own, obviously, you know, I'm paying myself. So it's an investment that I get to keep and write off and so on. So yeah, it was a no brainer. I mean, I, I did kind of dabble on whether I should go into my own property or rent a property for a few months. But at the end of it, it was just a win-win for me to just go into my own property. And did you intend to be in Gilbert? Was that something strategic that you thought of or because um, Gilbert is growing or... Yeah, the growth definitely did influence my decision, but I live at the border of Chandler and Gilbert, so I I did not want to travel far. But also, I had the uh, restrictive uh, miles from the previous uh, office, so I had to move a certain distance away, which worked out great because then, you know, kind of Gilbert is a place where my office was too. So I thought that like everything just turned out for, in my case, that it was a win-win and it worked out for me at the end. Nice. Nice. Well, let's talk about your practice a little bit. So when you went into dentistry, did you intend to focus on, on children's dental health care and oral disease prevention? No, honestly, my, my goal was just to get to dental school and get accepted and pass the years and, you know, make it through, um, But on my second year, I remember when we were put on rotations, um, I went to an adult clinic and I thought, oh, God, this this is not what I want to do. I do not want to deal with adults and their mouths. And there has to be another way. I I honestly debated about dropping out, but um, I found out that there's a such thing as pediatric or orthodontics. So and I, I always enjoyed 
uh, being around kids and working with kids and helping kids. So I kind of got drawn to that. And uh, my third year, I requested to work at a pediatric office to kind of get the feel for it. And of course, I fell in love with it. And I decided after dental school to do residency in pediatrics. And my my, uh, residency was really nice because we were kind of dual trained with orthodontics as well. So I got kind of the best of both worlds, pediatric and orthodontics. After pediatric dentistry, I decided to join the Air Force and serve active duty. So that was an interesting thing, too, because I served the Air Force as a pediatric dentist. I saw the dependents. Oh, very nice. Overseas. I was stationed in Japan. Wow. And, you know, obviously now through the years, how important is it for a child to receive dental health care growing up in order to prevent dental issues as an adult? Oh, it's crucial. It's crucial. You know, in the old days, they thought baby teeth. Why, why worry? Let them fall out. I even remember when I told my parents I'm going to be a pediatric dentist, they said, really, there is such a thing as pediatric dentistry? Um, don't you just let the teeth fall out, even if they have cavities? So the mindsets have changed. And parents do really, uh, I think, seek out pediatric dentists for their kids' care. Helping a child, you know, earlier on, not only with the dental disease, dental cavities, but also the growth and development of their jaw, their teeth, their skeleton, um, habits, you know, tongue ties, because I do that too, tongue ties, lip ties. I do a lot of uh, early interceptive orthodontics, expansions, and so on. You really help make a difference in this child's adult years to have less issues and less surgeries or less problems, less TMJ. So all around, it's been a very rewarding field. I truly enjoy doing what I do and blessed to do it. Absolutely. Your practice offers orthodontics, oral surgery, periodontics, and endodontics in addition to just pediatric dentistry, correct? No, just to kind of stand corrected, um, I don't do any periodontics per se, um, the, what, what periodontics do is uh, nowhere that I do anything like that. But if there's anything early help with children, so oral surgery, for example, of course, we refer them for wisdom teeth extractions. Anything perio that has to do with surgery or grafting will refer them out. Uh, my practice is from birth to 21. And then I do see special needs and that has no age requirement. I I see special needs at 40, 50 years of age, only because unfortunately nobody else wants to see them. Um, Any endodontics, I do refer out. But of course, if it has to do with baby teeth or with the special needs, then we'll do what we can, of course, to help them. Uh, Because it's hard to send a special needs to an endodontist to be put to sleep to do endo because they don't do that. Mm -hmm. But we do that. We do have that advantage in our office or if we do go to surgery centers and some of us go to hospitals to be able to provide that care. So it is kind of limited what we do, but it's not. We kind of tend to do a little bit of everything in our practice. But I do do a lot of uh, infants and tongue ties, lip ties, sleep apnea on children, uh, growth and development, early interceptive orthodontics and so on. Episode 29, Providing Financing and Investing in Dental Health Care. All the above, yeah. So, you know, as I'm getting a little bit more established in in my dental practice, for sure, you know, I want to diversify, right? Like a lot of us do. So I'd like to own my own property. I need the space. We, you know, I have a vision for my dental practice of growing 
to be really the premier dental practice. I would like to say we maybe already are close to that, but uh, I want our building to reflect that. So right now we're in a strip center. It's gorgeous on the inside. We've done a great job with our remodel there, but we're still in the middle of a strip center. I want a standalone building that stands out to be a, a destination dental practice. Today's interview is with Dr. Nikki Green, a cosmetic dentist and entrepreneur in Fort Worth, Texas. Her practice offers patients the latest technologies to provide smile makeovers quickly and painlessly. In an answer to dental insurance coverage lagging behind the increasing costs of today's dental services, she offers a membership program for her patients to receive the care they need that avoids more painful and expensive services later. A financing option that she finances herself offers patients to pay for services that they want now over time. In addition to these programs, she purchased a property where she can move her practice, offering her the branding to become the premier dental care destination and has long-term investment plans with the property. Join me in welcoming Nikki to the podcast. So Nikki, I'm really excited to have you as a guest on the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thanks, Trish. I'm actually really glad to be here, even from my car. (laughs) Well, you're a dentist, an entrepreneur, and you're about to purchase a property where you'll operate your practice out of, so we have a lot to discuss. Yes, absolutely. So Fort Worth Cosmetic and Family Dentistry, it's a very large practice. You have four dentists, six hygienists, and several staff members. So when did you open your private practice, and how did you build it to what it is today? Well, I started my private practice, and I actually purchased it December of 2007, meaning that my first year in business was the year of the great economic recession of 2008. Frankly, I think I was too young and too dumb to even realize what I was doing. <laughs> in hindsight, it's just a good part of my story. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's when I started my private practice here in Fort Worth. So I've been at it since the beginning of 2008. A baptism by fire, huh? Totally. (laughs) So this pandemic, even though I'm sure it's caused you some problems, it probably you're like, you know what, I've already been through one downturn, I can handle another. I mean, honestly, (laughs) that is so true. I mean, you know, when it hit, I mean, it was even though it's unprecedented, and we didn't know what to expect. I thought, yeah, I've been through murky waters before. We'll, we'll figure it out. And I'm certainly in a lot better position to go through it today than I was in 2008. So (laughs) we're figuring it out. Well, you yourself, you're focused on cosmetic dentistry and the latest techniques and technologies surrounding that. So what innovations are you using in your practice right now that have the most impact and results? Yeah, we are very much a technology-driven practice. Um, I've always said from the beginning of my practice years, I want to be on the cutting edge, not the bleeding edge. You know, sometimes when you step out with technology, particularly around healthcare and some of the intricate things that we do, sometimes you can be on the bleeding edge, which means, you know, you're trying things that don't work. And unfortunately, your patients are your guinea pigs and, you know, patients don't like that. So uh, we try to be on the leading edge, but not necessarily the bleeding edge. So when I say that, we use CEREC technology. I actually was a very early adopter of CEREC technology. I've used it in my hands since about 2004, which is considered a pretty early adopter CEREC technology is where we mill crowns and veneers in-house. So, you know, people know the traditional way you go to the dentist and have a crown or a veneer done. You go and you have the tooth prepped and then you get into a temporary and you spend a few weeks in the temporary while the restoration is being fabricated at a lab somewhere else. And then it comes back via the mail and then gets inserted into your mouth. So that's the typical way that it's done. And I'm not going to pretend like we don't do some of that too. We do. There are times when we need to utilize our labs, but 
for the bread and butter dentistry. You know, you need a crown on a posterior tooth or tooth breaks and uh, you need a quick fix. We have Seric technology in our office that we can do that. We use a 3D comb beam, which allows us to place implants in-house and know exactly, you know, where in the bone that implant is going to go. We can even combine that with our Seric technology where we can design the crown before the implant ever goes into the mouth. So that's kind of cool. It speeds things up, makes things more predictable. Patients love the technology, you know, um, so many dental offices are kind of stuck in about the 1970s, you know, and so they are expecting a, a hand cranked um, <laughs> dental chair. There's still those out there. And so when a patient comes in, particularly a new patient, they see all of our bells and whistles and all of our technology and they see what we can do digitally on the screen. Um, they love that. Um, it really gets them involved in their care. So. Um, we, we like to stay on that cutting edge. Well, who doesn't like to see what before and after before you actually go in and do it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which we I didn't even touch on that. I mean, there's there's so much technology that frankly, I take for granted. But yeah, we, we can do digital mock-ups, you know, someone comes in wanting a smile design, which is a lot of what I do in the office. You know, we can digitally mock that up um, and show them, you know, right there instantaneously what their new smile might look like, you know, much like if you went and, you know, tried on a new hair color or something, we can do that with a new smile. So so that's some of the technology that we incorporate. I'm getting into virtual consults right now, which is kind of fun, where I have a meeting somewhat like this. Um, you know, 10 years ago, no one would have ever imagined that you could talk to somebody about the possibilities with their smile and with their teeth virtually. But with, with iPhone cameras and the detail at which they can take photos, um, I can do that today. So we like to stay on that cutting edge. That's great. Yeah. Well, in these interviews, I like to talk about something that unique you do with your patients or, you know, that you have to offer. And, you know, you talked about speeding up the process, which, you know, who wants to go around with a bad looking tooth for longer than they have to? You know, obviously, some people are, are nervous to go to the dentist. They think it's going to be painful. But then, you know, there's the cost issue, which a lot of people, I would say they defer something until, you know, it's an infection or something, you know, serious that they need to address because of cost. So you offer a dental membership program, as well as you, you have a ton of education for helping patients navigate costs and financing their dental care. I really like your educational videos that you offer. I find that to be, I actually have never seen it before, but why did you start developing the, the membership program for financing? And then, you know, what motivated you to put those educational videos on your website for patients to have when they're at home? Yeah, I mean, first I'll I'll get to the membership in a minute, but um, first I'll just talk about the cost issue. I mean, it is the elephant in the room so many times when it comes to dentistry. The truth is, you know, dental insurance stinks. It has stunk, you know, for years. It it was developed in the mid '60s, and in the mid '60s, the average um, yearly maximum was a thousand dollars. We are now in 2020, and the average yearly maximum is fifteen hundred dollars. So we haven't moved the needle up, you know. Whereas in the mid '60s, a crown cost ninety dollars. Now a crown costs $1,200. So we have not moved the needle up at all when it comes to dental insurance. So we have to address the elephant in the room, you know, that dentistry does cost. Um, in my opinion, it's a, it's a value for sure. You know, we like to be able to smile. We like to be able to eat. We like to be able to chew. We like to be able to do all that without pain, without difficulty. So in my opinion, the value is there. But we still have to find ways to make that affordable for our patients um, and for all of our patients. You know, my, my practice is not just a, a white collar, top of the line, high end practice. We do high end dentistry, but I want to be able to serve, 
you know, my last patient that I just worked on was a local cop. I want to be able to serve my local cops. I want to be able to serve my local teachers. You know, I want to be able to serve anybody that values their mouth. So we have to address costs. So that's been a big part of our practice for years is creating financial arrangements that work for patients. So we have some really, you know, we have some that are just kind of your standard run of the mill. We've got care credit, things like that, that patients are, are familiar with. We also have a really interesting um, way patients can pay for their dentistry called compassionate finance. I'll talk a little bit about it because I know some of your people that are listening are healthcare providers. It's actually where I'm the bank. So I am actually the one financing the care. For years, we were taught not to do that, right? <laughs> we were taught don't be the bank. Well, the reality is sometimes patients need help and they can't find the outside financing and such. So um, it's something where there is a 20% down payment required, but then they can finance their dental care over a period of months or a period of years. There is an interest rate attached to it. Um, I don't manage that. I'm, that's managed through an outside company, which obviously I pay a percentage of. But talk about during an economic downturn, things like that are huge because that's a way for patients to be able to afford you know, ideal care. Episode 16 a physician owner's path to advocating sleep, health, and hygiene. It's really never about me. You know, it's always about what the patients, what the needs are. And so when I came out here, I was recruited by Banner Estrella and Abrazo West now, which was Old West Valley Hospital, because that was an expanding, growing area. And um, two new hospitals were put there to serve, and they did neurologists to help them manage and those patients in that area. And then uh, um, I expanded over to Honor Health because they came to me and, and asked me to do the same. And there were short physicians in that area. I really didn't want to do it, but I just did it, you know, for them because nobody else was willing to do it. So I expanded in those locations. And then downtown, we've discovered that everybody was going all through all these new suburb locations and all the doctors downtown that had left and a donut hole there. Today, I welcome Dr. Troy Anderson, a neurologist specializing in sleep medicine. I appreciate Troy's passion to advocate for his patients and empowering them to help themselves when promoting sleep, health, and hygiene to deal with sleep disorders. Troy's medical practice, Phoenix Neurology and Sleep Medicine, began with Troy's humanitarian interest in serving his patients and providing high-quality care. His healthcare real estate strategy as a physician owner started with locations and areas where he served his patients and grew into investing in his office. Please join me as we hear Troy's story. So in the world of healthcare real estate, you're defined as a physician owner, um, as you've chosen to invest in some of the office locations where you also operate your practice. So you are a neurologist specializing in sleep medicine and neurological disorders at Phoenix Neurology and Sleep that now has five locations throughout the Phoenix metro areas. Is correct? Yes, that is. So did you always know you wanted to focus on neurology when you decided to practice medicine? You know, what's interesting is uh, I neurology has always interested me, in it, even in high school, but um, I was uh, in the Navy for 12 years before I came to Phoenix as a flight surgeon, and there is a, um, I was in charge and a part of a uh, rescue when a 747 jet crashed, the Korean Airlines 801 crashed in Guam. And I was in charge of that rescue, and um, there was a lot of the people that I saw, victims that I saw that were alive when I first saw them. But when I had a chance to get back with more equipment to get them, they, they had passed away. You know, I, it always is a burden on my heart. And the reason why that accident occurred was because the pilot and the company 
did not adhere to then sleep policies, which were more recommended than required. And so the pilot basically did two long flights and then got into, a, um, you know, I had that mishap. And so I always felt like uh, a sleep really drew to me. I was really interested in it in terms of neurological aspect of it, but also how it could serve humanity. And maybe, maybe I couldn't save those people, but I could save somebody else from um, having an accident. So that's how I got involved in sleep medicine, which has been just an amazing field. It's been really a blessing to me more than I have been to it. And you decided to go into private practice pretty quickly after your residency. What initiated you to open private practice rather than work in a hospital? I did. You know, I mean, I wanted to do a full Navy career, but for family reasons, I left the Navy and came out here to Phoenix, which was unexpected. I grew up in California. I was expecting to go out there, but I um, basically came out and I learned a lot from the Navy in terms of making it about the mission, being friendly and caring, and being an advocate for patients. Those were my main ideals. And so I just started a practice out with uh, a patient-centered practice that would follow sort of my Navy humanitarianism. I'm excited to interview you because we were you had uh, spoken to a group of healthcare executives a while back, and you discussed how a person can only go days without sleep, and then they actually can pass away. It's actually 12 days. So I wanted, you know, to talk to you a little bit more, you know, when patients come to you for sleep disorders, are they aware of the importance of sleep health? You know, some get there eventually. I I see a lot of patients, you know, that fall into four categories. One category is like, yeah, they know something's off and they know that uh, they're not grounded in health and they, they come to me and they want to get grounded in health and and start living a diligent life. And then I have uh, um, other patients that they're asked to, to show up and they don't really believe that it's an issue and they really belittle their sleep. And um, so it takes some convincing with them. And sometimes, you know, most of the time I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. And then there's another category which initially start like that, but later on down the road, they have like a heart issue or they're older and wiser and they can kind of see the clock ticking. And then finally they get to their senses and they come back and see me after they've been diagnosed with the disorder years ago, they come back and want to get it taken care of. And have you seen a rise in patients with neurological or sleep disorders as a result of, you know, the isolation and shelter in place situation uh, we are dealing with, with in combating the coronavirus? I have because um, a lot of people are, they have the time now to focus on their health. And so we've actually seen a surge in sleep patients during the coronavirus where people are off of work and they finally uh, have stopped their busy life and they can focus back on their health and want to come back and get these things taken care of, which have been outstanding for quite some time in their life. And how many of these sleep disorders, if, you know, they're not the ones that they're finally dealing with it, but have you seen an onset with maybe some depression occurring um, and insomnia just because people are feeling some isolation effects? Absolutely. You know, uh, people require human interaction, but also in addition to that is there's, uh, you know, this unknown and the anxiety. So I have seen an increase in insomnia in a lot of my patients just because of the anxiety of the situation of uh, the unknown and how dangerous the coronavirus is. Well, and I'm not sure what normal we're going to return back to, but, you know, normally prior to, to coronavirus, we were always in a 365, seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day culture. And how many of those type of patients do you see that, you know, just can't turn off? 
You know, a lot, a lot actually. But uh, you know, we try to get patients to learn how to deal with it on their own. And and honestly, here's the the thing about it is, if you have a good sleep hygiene and sleep practices before coronavirus, it's easier for you to take care of it. Meaning that um, it is taught, and we preach this in sleep medicine that you need to put the hand up sometimes to the outside world and work and you need to we in a normal typical day i tell my patients after seven o'clock no work and you and no um planning of any sort that's really your time to do what you had planned to do leisurely but unfortunately in, in today's society we let these external stresses emails bank accounts bills penetrate all throughout into the bedroom even right before bedtime and you really need to learn how to segregate out, you know, your different roles, one of which is taking care of the household. The other one is you being a person and, and needing time for yourself. And um, if you could do that beforehand, when uh, things like the coronavirus hits, then you know how to worry about things when it's time to worry about them and then not worry about them when it's not time to worry about them. And right. so, yeah, so there is a, um, if you can learn how to get good seat practices, it's a natural jump to do that. But unfortunately, when everybody's going 24-7 and they're allowing work to penetrate all throughout their day and into their night and onto their bedroom and on their bed, then it's just harder for them to find this uh, period of peace. And then how are you seeing screens affect sleep habits? You know, uh, screens can for sure, but uh, that's not really a big role. It doesn't play a big role as much as just having a, a routine, you know, at seven o'clock, you know, have to do your whatever it is, leisurely, you have plan for yourself. 8.30, start turning down the lights, only like lampshade lights and overhead lights, have a shower, light snack, watch an uh, easy program, nice and easy, then go to bedroom, dark, quiet, cold, get a noisemaker like a box fan in there, and then just don't bring any, anything in your bed except for sleep and leave everything outside your bedroom. That routine, waking up on time, going to bed on time, making sure you're sticking to seven and a half hours of bedtime, that routine will supersede you know, light. Now, when it comes to arousal and you're waking up, blue light has been shown to wake people up for sure. But, you know, I mean, at nighttime, patients could watch a YouTube video or Netflix, you know, friends or something. And if it's, it's more of a state of relaxation that you need to achieve. Episode 32, Acutely Serving the Behavioral Health Needs of Mature Adults. You know, I would like it to be as mainstream as acute care hospitals. I'd like for it to be no big thing to check into a behavioral health facility and to get yourself stabilized and to have a better quality of life and then to be released out back home or from wherever you came and having a better quality of life. I'd like for that stigma to go away. I'd like for there to be more access um, to mental health. Because, you know, you've got access to a primary care provider like it's nothing, but finding a place for behavioral health care can be somewhat challenging. In today's episode, I interview Natalie Lamberton, CEO of Talis Harbor. Talis Harbor operates acute care behavioral health hospitals focused on healing the emotional and mental health of the geriatric population. We discuss how Talis Harbor is growing to serve both the behavioral health and any comorbidity physical health ailments of its older patient base. Serving those most vulnerable is something that comes easy to Natalie as her experience is in leading hospitals in rural areas and with underserved patients. Welcome, Natalie, to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Well, you have a, a lot of experience as a healthcare executive running hospitals. So what attracted you to, to Talis Harbor? It was an opportunity to do behavioral. I've never done behavioral before. So in my career, I've done rural, urban, suburban, for-profit, not-for-profit, post-acute, and acute, but never behavioral. And it's Jerry psych. So the elderly are near and dear to my heart. And I thought, you know, this would be a new challenge and it's a startup and it's um, slated to have several hospitals in the system. And I thought, and it's my first system position. So I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity. And uh, Talis Harbor offers acute care and post-acute behavioral health care, correct? No. Well, we offer acute medical behavioral health care for the geriatric population. All right. So uh, do you want to tell us the background story of Talis Harbor and how it started? Sure. Talis Harbor has been around, I believe, about two and a half years. The president comes from post-acute care, so he used to run assisted livings. He saw that there was a need to send his residents to psych facilities, and it can be dangerous sending geriatric elderly patients to psych facilities that are adult 18 and up. You know, you put an 87-year-old person with a homicidal, suicidal 23-year-old who's aggressive and irritated, that can be a dangerous setting to put them in. And so he saw a need to have specifically Jerry Psych to send his residents to. So he's decided to start some for himself. And uh, Talis Harbor brings together healthcare providers from multiple disciplines to treat patients. So how does this approach deliver better patient care? Yeah, interdisciplinary medicine is always best practice, no matter what area you're in. But it brings together social workers, case managers, nurse practitioners, psychologists, psychiatrists, and brings them all together in an interdisciplinary setting so that they can treat the entire patient physically, emotionally, mentally. And so all these crafts come together and treat the patient, come up with the treatment plan, and then you've got the entire person that you're treating, not just their behavior. So are these providers employees of Talis Harbor, or do you guys contract with private practitioners? Um, We do both. We do both, depending on what practitioner it is and what model that they want to be in. But mostly we employ our providers, and we do, of course, have a medical director and we've got associate medical director as well. So one's a psychiatrist and one's an actual medical MD physician. Because we are a medical psych facility in that, when you get 55 and older population, typically they come with comorbidities, diabetes, COPD, CHF, hypertension, things like that. So they don't just come with the primary diagnosis of a psychiatric condition, but they also come with a medical condition more than likely as well. So we can treat their comorbidities as well as taking care of their primary psychiatric diagnosis. And just so that, you know, we we clarify for some people that may not be familiar, it's not just dementia. I mean, it's actual behavioral health issues that need to be addressed. Right. Suicidality, anxiety, depression, things like that. Dementia and Alzheimer's, we know that um, in those elderly populations, sometimes they do have things like that. We can treat Um, the patient who maybe have mild or moderate um, Alzheimer's and uh, dementia because they actually do have a primary psychiatric diagnosis. We take care of that primarily. And then secondarily, we can help treat the other things that are going on. And how many locations do you have and where do you focus geographically? Right now, we um, have a location in Bullhead City, Arizona, and we are opening a location probably in the next month in Phoenix. In the next two months or so, we've got one in Las Vegas, and then 
We've got several other locations identified with the expectations to grow over the next five years or so. You see a need. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you just completed that the facility in Bullhead City. So what drove Talis Harbor to that location? You know, um, the president actually had a assisted living in Bullhead City, and there was an elderly gentleman that started having behavioral issues. So they had to send him out of the assisted living and into a hospital setting. And the hospital couldn't handle or manage him. And he really needed a psych hospital. And so an ambulance came, put him in a four-point restraint, drove him four and a half hours to Phoenix and put him in a hospital there where the family couldn't travel to see him. The gentleman declined and within 30 days he had passed away. And how old was he? Um, I'm not sure how old he was. Pretty elderly, I believe. It being that had they had that uh, resource in town, had they had the family be able to visit and had all these resources and things around in Bullhead City, I think that that gentleman would have fared much, much better and had a better quality of life and a better outcome than he had. So that's kind of what triggered the president to say, you know what, I think I'm going to build one of these. And how many beds does it have? It's got 24 bed footprint. Nice, nice size. You know, in a, in a lot of interviews, I, I hear behavioral health is the most needed and the most lacking in medical care today. Do you agree? I do agree. And, you know, it's likely that everyone will have some episodic mental health issue in their lives. What the five things that happen to you most important in your life are life, death, marriage, divorce. There are a lot of things that happen to us that can give us episodic depression or anxiety and things like that. And um, most won't seek care in their lifetime, even though they're going through an episode of a mental health issue because of a situation or things that they're going through. So it is much needed and the stigma is going away, but still there. So it's, it's a, it's a touchy subject for some. So people are supposed to go through the human condition without having help is, is kind of what they're... Exactly. (laughs) It is right now. (laughs) Exactly. When you have those struggling times and you need support, you not to have it. Exactly. And that it's unfortunate. I, I can't imagine, but um, it, are the increased need for behavioral health services in geriatric patients occurring as a direct result of some isolation happening with, with the pandemic? Absolutely. And it's not just help happening with elderly. It's, a, it's with um, pediatric and adult as well, but specifically with elderly because they're somewhat isolated to begin with. They're older Maybe their spouse has passed away. Their, you know, a majority or a good amount of their friends have passed away, and so it's really important for them to socialize as well. And with the pandemic and COVID happening, they're isolated, becoming um, episodically depressed, having anxiety, not being able to see their loved ones or their adult children and grandchildren and things like that. And so it can be very, very difficult. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.